This is a Federal News Network podcast. From rattlesnakes to bison, the wildlife are part of the attraction in places like the Grand Canyon National Park. But it's 2021, not 1821, and the bison herd has to be controlled. That's why the National Park Service has initiated what it calls a lethal reduction. To explain how it works, spokesman Kate Thomas. Ms. Thomas, good to have you on. Great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. And I was going to ask you, how come you're having a bison hunt? And you're going to tell me it's not a hunt, is it? (laughs) That's right. And I'm really glad that you asked this question. So hunt is a misnomer. And once the Park Service announced that we were lethally removing or culling bison from the park, the, the term hunt caught fire. But that couldn't really be further from what's actually happening. And lethal removal, as this is called, it differs from a hunt in purpose, manner, and disposition. So the purpose of this removal is not recreational at all. It's a management activity with the goal of reducing the population of overpopulated or destructive animals, and in this case, bison. And what is it about the bison that requires them to be culled? Well, as for why we're doing this, we'll need to travel back in time a little bit. So the herd of bison that was introduced near the north rim of Grand Canyon in the early 1900s eventually drifted down to the end of House Rock Valley, and the state of Arizona began managing this herd back in 1929. And today, this herd has expanded to about three to 500 individuals. But starting in the 1990s, a combination of wildfires, drought, and hunting in the area drove the bison into the north rim of Grand Canyon, where they have ranged in a very small area almost exclusively since 2009. So these bison have a particularly high impact on the ecosystem because this ecosystem is not recently adapted to large-scale bison grazing. So the bison here are trampling the soils, they're decimating native plants, they are polluting very fragile water resources, and they even damage irreplaceable uh, archaeologic sites. And, And if I could show you photographs, you could see that parts of the park have just been so trampled that areas that were once really lush valleys have become pockmarked with dust pits and mud holes, and now we have invasive plants on the rise, and E. coli contamination from the bison is affecting the North Rim Aquifer, which you know thousands of people depend on every year. Sure, and I guess the National Park Service has plans for a little bit more development for tourists on the North Rim also going on. Well, we're certainly uh, looking into redoing our water line, and so this is a big part of that. We want to be able to accommodate the large number of visitors. You know, visitation in a, I know we're still in a COVID year, but visitation is increasing from last year, and we expect it to get back up to where it's been in the previous few years and increase from there. So we're certainly looking toward making sure our infrastructure is prepared to handle those visitors. So you don't want zero bison, you just want a manageable number that can live in harmony with that north rim. Right, exactly. So if we did nothing, this bison herd could grow to about 1,500 individuals over the next 10 years, and they're already too many. 500 bison in such a small location is really going to just take out the ecosystem. And if no management action is taken, it might even be detrimental to the herd itself for it to grow that large. So 
in 2017, we conducted an environmental assessment that determined that the herd size should be about 200 animals in order to be in balance with the ecosystem. And the public was allowed to provide comment during this period of time. We received lots of public comments, lots of folks that were for the program, and just a few who were against. And in the end, the Park Service, the State of Arizona, the Forest Service, we developed a system of reducing the herd through a multi-pronged approach. So we're doing live capture and relocation as well well as lethal removal. And so lethal removal is only a small part of what we're doing to manage the bison. So far, we've been really successful with live removal too. So over the last two years, 88 bison have been successfully captured and relocated to the Intertribal Buffalo Council. And they were then distributed to several Great Plains tribes from that agency. And we will continue our partnership with them this fall. And so my question then is, if this culling by lethal reductions is required, why have members of the public apply for the licenses or the permits to do the shooting? Why not just have park personnel handle it one, two, three? Yeah, and that's a great question, and I've gotten that question a lot. And the answer really is waste. So the National Park Service, as a federal agency, we cannot just donate meat or parts to individuals directly. It has to be a government-to-government thing. So by having volunteers come in and assist, we then will have them lethally remove the bison. The bison carcasses will be donated to the state of Arizona, and then the state of Arizona will distribute the meat, the parts to those volunteers, and surplus meat will go to our 11 traditionally associated tribes, and they have expressed significant interest in receiving meat from us. So by doing it in this manner, by having the public volunteers, we're able to donate those meat and parts where otherwise we wouldn't necessarily be able to do so. Some good bison burger coming up here. We're speaking with Kate Thomas. She's an acting public affairs specialist at the Grand Canyon National Park. And I say you are one of the luckiest people to work on one of God's great spots here in North America. And how do you then assess the skill and ability of the people that will do this to make sure that they do it quickly, humanely, and competently? Right. So the applicants, once we receive the finalists, the applicants will be given a federal background check, and they must show proof of a hunter safety certificate. We're also going to be interviewing them, so we'll have a team of park officials, and we'll be asking about their big game experience in this interview, vetting them, making sure that they do know what they're doing. And once we've narrowed down the candidates to the best 12, Each of the 12 final applicants will be required to pass a shooting proficiency test at the park before the operational period begins. So they'll need to be able to get three out of five shots in a four-inch target at 100 yards. Some serious shooting skill. Absolutely. And do you have any idea of what it takes in terms of caliber to bring down something as large as a bison? Yes. So we are permitting only rifles chambered for bottlenecked cartridges with a bullet caliper of 30 caliber or larger, combined with a non-lead bullet of 165 grains or heavier, and that's all that we will be approving. We're not going to make any exceptions, and all of that ammunition must be lead-free. Got it. Yes, you don't want the uh, missed shots or the lead into the meat, I suppose, because that's nobody wants lead. And is this going to be an annual event? So this is a pilot event. It could become annual if it is successful, but we're going to be taking a look at a lot of factors. You know, was this successful? Was it efficient? Was it timely? And do we think that we want to do this again? So if we do determine that this is 
successful, it could become an annual event, but it would only last for the duration of the five-year agreement between the state of Arizona and the National Park Service before we would stop the program again and reassess. You know, we don't want to remove too many bison. We want to make sure that we get it to that happy number of 200. And are you looking to, say, remove a certain number of males and females, or can the shooters just pick whichever ones they can find? So part of how this differs from the hunt is that we are going to be very specific. So the bison selected for lethal removal will be determined by management, and every volunteer who will be with us will be accompanied by an MPS official at all times. So what they will do is they will actually identify that animal for its ability to most effectively reduce the reproductive potential of the herd. And generally, this means females of reproductive age. So we can't guarantee that we won't be removing a male or two, but for the most part, we'll be looking at those females because that will most quickly reduce that reproductive potential. And the NPS official will identify that animal, and then no more than one bison per volunteer will be removed. So we're looking at a total of only 12 animals this year. So in other words, the resulting and leftover males won't get overly frustrated next season. I should hope not. And by the way, how does bison taste? You know, I haven't had a bison burger lately, but once upon a time when I lived up in uh, Moab, Utah, I did enjoy some bison meatloaf. All right. And bison are themselves vegetarian, correct? I do believe so. I haven't asked one lately. (laughs) All right. Well, you may get that chance. Kate Thomas is an acting public affairs specialist at the Grand Canyon National Park. Thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, you're welcome, and thank you for having me. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama Administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, And the idea that we don't have the human interaction uh, which I think is very important when you think about the I- empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America, and certainly within me, uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, uh, in in the way I lead, to be inclusive, 
to be uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina. Uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have uh, my willingness to to fight for change, and that was that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, the 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 massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina. A very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life, and and it conjured up again these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community uh, inspired by that tragedy, and now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life, and what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream, which we often define and think of his big, I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that, 
you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's in an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service, uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort. Down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor at the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, and, and so I think that's a lesson for me, if there was some advice and counsel I could give, is to continue to do your work. But, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. 
Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.